prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, James Gunn on The Suicide Squad, The Future of Guardians, and much more. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. We've got a great filmmaker on the podcast today and one that we've been trying to get on for a while. I've known James Gunn for like a decade, um, talking to him in every different capacity, except here on the podcast. Somehow there's the timing has never worked out. We've talked about doing it for a while, and I'm thrilled that finally the ship's lined up, the schedule's lined up, and we have James Gunn on Happy, Sad, Confused, and the the, the wait was worthwhile. Um, the conversation is great. He is a fantastic uh, guy to chat with and nerd out with on all things film, and specifically comic book films, and his new one, as you've probably heard by now, The Suicide Squad, is getting exceptional... Uh, reactions and justifiably so. I really dug this movie. I've seen it twice. Don't worry, this is not a spoiler conversation. Nothing in here uh, really is not in any of the trailers or anything. There's maybe an allusion to a specific kind of action scene, way it's shot, but I don't think that's a huge spoiler. Um, so feel free to go into this, you know, and, and, and not worry. Just enjoy the conversation with James, who has had quite the journey as a filmmaker. If you don't know kind of the background of James Gunn, like the, the, the short version is he was a trauma disciple. Trauma, obviously that famous kind of B-movie studio from Lloyd Kaufman, um, kind of like down and dirty way of making films and, and kind of really um, dark, funny, twisted uh, horror action. Uh, so he came out of that world and then made films like Super, um, and uh, Slither, and seemed to be on one path when Guardians of the Galaxy came around and seemed to just utilize all of his talents in a way we, we didn't even understand it at the time. And obviously Guardians of the Galaxy became just a phenomenon. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 followed. And then things got a little weird. A few years back, three years back, James Gunn uh, lost the Guardians Volume 3 gig. He was booted by Disney and Marvel because of past tweets. And it seemed like James Gunn might be over for a second. Certainly James Gunn thought so. And he's really honest in this conversation, thinking his career was done. Um, of course, his career was not done. And thankfully, cast members from Guardians and others came to his defense. Disney did the right thing and reinstated him. He is going to be directing Guardians Volume 3. But in the meantime, DC came calling, Warner Brothers came calling and offered him basically the pick of the litter of what he wanted to direct. They wanted him to direct Superman, for God's sakes. He said, no, I want to do The Suicide Squad. I know it was just made. David Ayer's kind of famously embattled production came and went, but I want to do my take on The Suicide Squad, and certainly he has done that. And uh, this new one opens this Friday, and it start, has an amazing ensemble led by... Idris Elba and Margot Robbie and uh, Joel Kinnaman, um, the, the list goes on and on. Everybody's excellent in this in this film. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been quite a saga for James, and he gets into all of it in this conversation today. And as I said, he's super honest about kind of the 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 ups and the downs, and the downs are were significant for him. Um, and we talk a little bit, of course, about the future too. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three is coming soon. He's been working on the Peacemaker show for HBO Max, 
And uh, we also just discussed sort of like his appetite for future comic book films and um, where he might be headed next. So, again, so thrilled James Gunn came on the podcast to talk all things Suicide Squad and more. Um, other things to mention. Let's see. Oh, we have a new Game Night episode up on the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Happy Sag Infused. Uh, check this one out. This is super fun. This is Daniel Radcliffe, my old buddy, Harry Potter himself, on Game Night. It's, um, it's Dan and his Miracle Workers co-stars, Karen Sony and Geraldine Viswanathan. Uh, Miracle Workers on TBS is a really funny show. I feel like it's kind of under the radar, too, but I really dig it. Uh, the new season is on the Oregon Trail. Each season kind of reiterates. It's, an, it's a different setting, different set of characters, but the same cast. Um, and this was a blast. A uh, bunch of silly Jackbox games and more with this crew, and they were all very funny and very game. So again, patreon.com slash happysetconfused. Enjoy this game night with, uh, with Dan Radcliffe and his buddies. And I should say, if you join the Patreon, um, all the game night episodes are available for you, whether you want to check out Sam Hewen or Chris Pratt or, or whatever, Kevin Hart recently, they're all there. So um, I encourage you to check it out. I think you'll dig it. Um, let's see, what else should be mentioned? Some cool MTV interviews coming soon. Maybe I won't mention them just yet. Been doing some stuff for Comedy Central. Had a lovely chat with Alexander Daddario. You can check that out pretty soon, I think, on Comedy Central's YouTube page. Um, you know uh, you know how we roll. I'll, I'll mention all of this on my social media, Joshua Horowitz, on Twitter and Instagram. That's the best place to keep up with all of my shenanigans. Um, all right, let's get to the main event. If you're here, you're probably here for James Gunn, and I don't blame you. Uh, as I said, this one does not disappoint. Uh, here's me and James on all things Suicide Squad and more. Mr. James Gunn, this has been a long time coming. We've been talking about doing the podcast for a while. I've been I've been pestering you, so I'm glad it fi- we're here. We made it. We made it. Yeah, this is it. This is it. Finally, okay. I'm, I'm talking to people. You know, for like, you know, whatever, four years now, I've been telling everyone, oh, you know, not doing any podcasts, not doing any interviews. No, 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 no. And now I'm finally doing a few things, but not too many still, Josh. So. No, I appreciate it. I, I, I appreciate you making the time, man. And congratulations on The Suicide Squad, uh, another exceptional piece of work. And it is a, a, uh, a James Gunn film through and through. And that is a high compliment coming from me. And I will say, like, it's been a, it's been a minute since I've seen you. And I feel like you've risen like Gandalf. You're like Gandalf the White now. You are, you are reborn, my friend. This is from the James Gunn. From the ashes. That's right. The phoenix arises. Does it feel, does it feel like, I mean, you've been on a journey. Well, I want to, we'll get to the last few years, but let's go a little bit more wide first, because look at like James Gunn 10 years ago. It's fascinating to think about about 10 years ago, super comes out. It makes like, I mean, I love it, but it makes less than 600 K at the box office. It is not. Although I will say super did pretty well on VOD, which is where, The box office was just sort of advertising for the VOD. So it did Fair okay. Enough. Considering the movie only cost $3 million, it, it did pretty well. It didn't feel like what Slither felt like, you know, which was not a hit, you know. You were perceived a different way prior to Guardians as this kind right. of like 
guy on the outskirts, this perverse kind of trauma, ex-trauma guy. Iconoclast, yes, yes. Exactly. Is it, does it boggle your mind to this day, like where you stand, where you sit, and like you are the center of pop culture? It doesn't get any more centered than the movies you've made the last decade. Uh, I just don't perceive it in that. I just don't look. I try as little as possible to think of myself how other people think of myself. In a lot of ways, it just so doesn't matter to my life. You know, right. um, yeah, I, you know, but it wasn't that I, I always wanted to make bigger movies. It's not that I didn't want to make movies that were more uh, mainstream or whatever you might think. Like I just, that was always a part of my plan for myself. It just uh, didn't, uh, you know, it just took a few years to get there. Do you think though, like that sensibilities have also changed a bit? Hugely, hugely. I think if... I think if Super came out today, it would be perceived much differently. I mean, you know, listen, you go back to 1998, I made a movie called The Specials, which right. was a commentary on superheroes, you know, right. made like before real superhero movies were out, really. So yes, I've always, you know, I mean, just because now comic book culture, which was the culture that I grew up with through reading comic books, not through seeing movies, now comic book culture is made mainstream through movies, not through comic books. So all of those sort of th themes and weird things that interested me about comic book superheroes, what is it, you know, with Frank Darbo and Super, what does it really mean to be a vigilante? You know, uh, a guy who beats up people for doing what he thinks of as wrong. What is that like in real life? I think that's a much more interesting premise to people today than it was sure. when I made that movie who didn't have anything to compare it with. It also, though, you would admit, I would, I would think that, like, as the years have progressed, you've also found a way to inject more heart, more yeah. emotion yeah. in these in these films that still have like a perverse nature at times. Yeah. You found a way for to have them commingle, and that's that's yeah. maybe your greatest yeah. accomplishment, I would argue, the last ten years. Yeah, I think I'm just much more emotionally grounded. I mean, that's me. I mean, I, but I, but if you look back at you know my first movie, Tromeo and Juliet, you look back at the specials, you look back at Super, those all have really um, emotional aspects to them. I mean, right. like really, it could be argued that the emotionality of Super was the main, you know, the primary aspect of that film. So yeah. that, that, that emotionalism was always there. It was always present. I've always been an emotional person. But I think that I am a little bit, less uh i don't want to say i'm less punk rock but whatever <laughs> there was always a need to like push somebody's buttons to right mess with someone like there's an aggressiveness i had uh both as a person and in my work earlier on that i i let go of you know and that's for a lot of reasons but i don't deal with things aggressively in my life generally Right. So it's that's, that's a part of maturity for all of us. I mean, like that's just the that's our everyone's twenties is about just like yes. fuck the system. I need to yeah. like rebel against everything. And at a certain point, you're like, yeah, I, I can still be that, but everything yeah. doesn't have to be a fuck you to the world. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't get excited by offending people. Right, right. So so let's talk. So when you when you get into Guardians, and I promise we'll get obviously into Suicide Squad, but like when you get in in there, when you look back on that experience, is there anything about helming that film that you cringe at in terms of like, oh, I didn't, if I, I didn't know what I was doing in that, at least that respect. Obviously it came out pretty damn well, but no. like, was there anything you were kind of like, no, you, you were ready. You had all yeah, the tools. Totally ready. I, I was, I had every tool available to me to do that movie. So I had been 
making, I think if, if, if you ask me the one thing that I cringe about, it, it probably isn't the thing that you would expect, but um, I've been far under budget on all of my movies, including Suicide Squad. And that's a very unusual thing in Hollywood, but I'm not very selfish. I'm very, I have a producer hat on because I started making $350,000 movies. I made an entire feature film for $1,500. So I always have this producer hat on to like rush and get things done. And at, a, at times that took precedence over taking my time and making sure I got done what I did correctly. And that could be in a shot, that could be in somebody's performance. And, I, and it also, it, it caused me a lot of grief. I didn't, I didn't enjoy the experience because I was so filled with fear about getting that next shot. Right. So I think that was really, it took me through past Guardians 2 to get rid of that completely. Um, and I'm still I, under budget, I'm still fast. And I love being fast, it's cool. I feel responsible doing it, I like doing it. It makes it more fun to make a movie. But if I don't get something, I take my time and I, I make sure I get it right. I would I would assume also the pleasant, hopefully not surprised, because you, you you were hoping, I'm sure going into Guardians, that you would maintain some authorship over it. But like, it's still kind of shocking to think that, again, you were able to make your film, even within the context of the larger MCU. Did you have trepidation at the time that you were going to be able to be true to yourself or were you like kind of stealing yourself or like at some point they're going to come in and, and kind of I, I, like listen, take this I went in and, I went in and pitched totally what Guardians was to yeah. Kevin and Lou. Now today I might go you know you hear stories about people that pitch exactly what they want and then the studio buys into that and then wants something totally different. Right. Maybe I was too naive for that but I told them exactly what the movie was going to be from the beginning. I knew and I honestly felt like I was created in a lab I was grown in a Petri dish to make Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, I knew that no one else could do with that movie what I was going to do. So I was incredibly confident with it. I'm maybe overconfident with a lot of things anyway, but I was incredibly confident. And the way I kind of get away doing what I want to do is I'm just never the squeaky wheel. I mean, they had other productions happening at the same time and I, they were much more problematic and I was just not going to be the squeaky right. wheel. So I sit back. I get all my footage done every day. I have, make sure the dailies look good. And then I don't get screwed with. And um, and that was the way that was back then. You know, still, you know, there are things that, you know, I agreed to that, uh, that you know, you know, small regrets of things that I agreed to that, you know, I, I wish I hadn't, but n nothing very big with Guardians Volume 1. You obviously have a knack for casting. If you look at Guardians, you go all the way up to the Suicide Squad. And now there's like so much lore about the casting of that first Guardians. I mean, there people have talked about the auditions and everything. We know that Glenn Howerton was your kind of second choice for Quill. Yeah. I mean, there's there are fascinating things like I guess Chadwick was up for Drax, which is fascinating. I mean, do you remember that? Do you remember his take on on Drax? I don't, I don't remember it. I thought I met I until now, I thought I met Chadwick at the Hollywood Blockbuster Awards and uh, you know, when we, when he was first got the role of Black Panther and wow. he and Chris Pratt and I hung out. So, uh, I, I don't remember him auditioning for Drax at all. Was, was Glenn's take on Peter Quill that much different than, than Pratt's? I mean, obviously you were into it and you would have been happy with it sounds like, but it would have been a different, I assume it would have been a different guy. It would have been a different guy. Yeah. 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 Definitely a different guy. But yeah, that was part of the thing. I mean, for, for Peter Quill, I wanted somebody to come in and fill it with their own personality. It couldn't just be 
you know, Rocket and Gruden are much more like, hey, there's got to be this thing, and they're fitting right. into this tight little box. But with 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 him, that wasn't so much the case. You know, with Gamora, that wasn't so much the case. What was the hardest person to cast in that in that cast? Like, what was the biggest? I don't want to say fight, but what was the biggest kind of back and forth discussion? That in the oh, end, there's that... no doubt. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Dave Bautista and I are so tight today is because they Marvel didn't want to cast Dave Bautista, and they didn't really want to cast Michael Rooker either. So those were those were bad. They didn't want to cast Karen Gillan either. So those were all battles that I had to fight to get those people cast. Um, Chris was a little bit easier. Zoe was very easy. Um, but the rest of them were, were, were there was some, there was some, never, like, listen, I mean, it's like, you know, people, I say things like that, and then people's ideas that there were, we were arguing and fighting. No, it was always so friendly and so open, and, you know, they yeah, just- I'm sure it's these fun, exciting, like, you're like kids in, like, a, a boardroom, like, oh, my God, wouldn't it be cool for this person to be that person? Yeah, it'd be cool, but maybe this is the better way to go. Yeah, like, so it was always pretty, it was always pretty, pretty- pretty friendly you know but dave was definitely the hardest because there was you know there was specifically somebody else they wanted to cast in that role that yeah. I, I i preferred dave the, the one other one i wanted to mention is is it true that alan rickman was gonna was up for a role that you were thinking about casting him in guardians you know when people i don't know is who would have he been not that i remember no okay i don't okay. think so but like you know again when when you say considering to be like Sarah Finn or whoever my, you know, casting person is in at the time comes in with a booklet that's thick right. with <laughs> the names of people that are being considered for Peter Quill. So all the time I hear somebody was considered for Peter Quill or they were, you know, being, you know, but like we literally had over, you know, hundreds of auditions for Peter Quill. Right, right, you know, right. So, I don't, I don't know, you know. So, so, so let, let's jump ahead to the the, the birth of, of this one. Um, so the Suicide Squad, as is well known, for those that don't know, is kind of birthed out of arguably one of the darkest kind of career moment for you, a, 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 a definite down moment. It's almost three years exactly. I remember I was at Comic-Con. I think I was scheduled to talk to you like in a day, the next day. Oh, right. there's J right. James is on the schedule. We're going to talk Brightburn. It's going to be awesome. And then like everybody, I saw the deadline headline come across that you were out were you yeah. were you were you in san diego already can you, can uh -uh. you i was supposed to be taking uh i can't remember if i was supposed to be taking a plane i think a plane the next day to to uh to san diego uh so we were supposed to get on the plane yeah i think we were taking a jet we were supposed to get on the plane with my brother brian and my cousin mark who wrote the screenplay the director dave and uh and we were gonna and, and, and i'm sure uh you know, the, the, some of the actors and we were going to fly out there and, um, and yeah, didn't happen. Did, did, did you feel it could be over? Like the career could legitimately. 100% thought it was over. 100% thought it was totally done. 100% was like, I got to think about what I'm going to do next. <laughs> and 100% thought I have to, you know, I might have to sell my house uh and figure out how i can conserve the money that i had made so far to last for the rest of my life that's crazy who who's the first person that kind of do you remember reached out that started to make you feel like okay i might some people have my back and maybe i'll be okay michaela hoover who most people don't know but as they know she's a good friend of some people know she's a good friend of mine she's been in a lot of my movies she reached out immediately batista uh, Chris Pratt reached out. 
Oh, you know what? She reached out uh, like the night it was happening. But then when I got fired, Chris called me immediately and Zoe called me immediately. And Zoe was crying. And then Karen called me, Karen Gillen called me and she was crying. Uh, and uh, it really was. And then Dave was tweeting about it. So uh, Palm, I talked to immediately. I talked to all of the guardians immediately, but it was also like my agents and uh, Sylvester Stallone, uh, you know, sent me a video of uh, <laughs> my buddy, Michael Rosen. I mean, it was really just, it really was all the people in my life that I'm close to. And I feel bad every time I say, oh, look at all these famous people. Cause there was a lot of non-famous people, you know, my mom and my dad, my brother <laughs> and my sister, you know, my, my, my girlfriend, Jen, of course, was the most, you know, she had to go through it with me. So there were a lot of people and then a lot of people that were not, uh, you know, who I didn't know who were, you know, you know, involved in the media and stuff, strange stuff like that, um, which was guess, which was cool. I guess if there's a takeaway, it, it, a message for folks, it's good to be kind to other people uh, because they'll have your back when when you need them. Uh, yeah. That karma well, I mean, that was clearly came lesson, around. Yeah, that was a lesson for me, really. And that this is like me being 100 um, percent, you know, as raw as I can be. You know, I had spent my whole life seeking fortune and fame. And right. I'm a creative guy. I love, you know, making movies and telling stories. But there was a part I was, part of it I was using to try to fill uh, a hole in me that didn't feel loved by other people. And either because I am some strange place on the spectrum or because of my relationship with my parents or whatever, I never was able to experience feeling loved. And when that happened, uh, I felt like everything in my life had been taken from me at one time. But in that moment, all of a sudden, all these people loved me in a moment when I thought my career was over. Yeah. And I felt so, I felt loved for the first time in my life. And it was an incredibly empowering experience. And I went to sleep that night then this is the weirdest part. I thought I had lost everything. I went to sleep pretty happy that night because I never knew people loved me. And I suddenly was able to experience that. And that affected everything afterwards. It's funny. I mean, I, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump more into like the specifics of, of Suicide Squad. But as you're talking about that, I'm like, I'm thinking about the film and like these kind of unlovable characters, certain of which like do find like someone yeah. to love them by the end yeah. of it. So it's, 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 it's clear that that was resonating as you were writing this. Um, but we'll get to that. First, I'm just curious. So DC comes calling. How does that go down? Do they say like, look, we're open to you. We, we love what you do. Here's our, here, what do you want to do? Because I've heard Superman talked about. Do they yeah, yeah. say it's, Superman? It's really, it's really easy. So my manager is Peter Stafford. He's also the producer of the Suicide. Right. Peter's been my manager since 1998. We're very, one of my closest friends. He works out at Warner Brothers in the morning. Toby Emmerich comes out and works out in the same gym as he does every morning. Every morning, Toby Emmerich came in, starting that Monday after, <laughs> saying, James Gunn Superman, James Gunn Superman, James Gunn Superman. And Peter would laugh. Uh, and then he said, but serious, Toby said, but seriously, whatever James wants to do, he can come and do, you know, just tell us what he wants to do. He's like, We'd love him to do Superman. We'd love him to do, uh, we want to do a Suicide Squad sequel. We'd love him to do that. Um, but, you know, whatever he wants to do. And so with that, I went and I sat down and I thought about all of the different 
projects that I was considering. And they weren't actually all Warner Brothers projects. There was a couple of other things I was considering as well. Um, and so I kind of sat down with these different ideas because a problem I've had at times in the past is I've committed to a good idea and then found out I don't really know how to implement it. This was more a problem I had as a writer than as a director. But I didn't want to commit myself to doing something for so long if I didn't really love the story. And I, uh, and I started to fall in love with Suicide Squad. And I called up, you know, Walter Hamada and I said, what do I have to keep? I watched the first, the, the last movie for the first time. And I said, you know, what do I have to keep from the movie? And what do I not have to keep? And he said, you don't have to keep anything. He said, you could change everybody. You could change nobody. We love Margot. We'd love it if she was in the movie, but you don't have to keep her. You can do whatever you want. And so from that, then I did, went and just started writing this story and it just took off. And it was more exciting to me than all the other ideas I was working on. And it just became really clear which thing I was most passionate about. How far did you go down the road of, because I mean, like with Bat, alongside Batman, Superman's the crown jewel. Like he's like the most iconic superhero on the planet. So I would imagine there's some temptation, some temptation to be like, oh, let me, let me see what I can do with that. Was, did it feel like there was unexplored territory that was interesting for you? For some yeah, reason? I mean, I've, I've talked about it before, but I considered doing a crypto movie, which I thought would have been really fun. So, uh, but that shows you where my head's at. I'm not that, <laughs> I wasn't that interested. Let me go mainstream, but, the mainstream uh, superheroes dog. <laughs> a superpowered dog running around a city, destroying it. Well, uh, that's from Krypton. Well, Superman tries to, to track him down and get him. That seemed interesting to me. So, you know, I'm not saying I would never be interested in Superman. And if it was Batman, which Matt was already doing, it might have been a different, I might have thought, felt differently about it because right. I understand Batman. You know, I understand Harley Quinn. Like, I don't understand every character. So you, you land on Suicide Squad. It's fascinating to me that, like, first of all, that they even offered it up because it like the, at the time you could perceive it as having some baggage while the box office was good obviously it wasn't like the most critically acclaimed film it, david's struggles with the studio are, are, are you know famous yeah. that, um, well, there's no doubt i mean that still is part of it today i mean first of all there's no greater guy than david ayer he's been the best guy to me in the world he's an extremely talented filmmaker but everybody knows he has struggles that's a that's a that's a you know that affects the 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 title you know yeah um, and so that's, you know, part of did, what this was. How did you feel like your way into like navigating that baggage was? Did it feel like you have to like implement certain things in order to kind of like make people realize, okay, we're no. kind of starting from scratch or not? No, no. just make, make the best movie you can, just trust in that. 100%, like that from the beginning, that wasn't my business. If, you know, if Warner Brothers has problems because of the first movie or whatever, that's right. like really up to them to figure out and fix, you know, and, and, and fix or not fix. Like that's up to them. I can just tell the best story I can. And I wasn't going to be telling a story that was a shadow of David's movies that yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm trying to react to things that didn't work in your movie and make them differently. I just wanted to tell the story of the Suicide Squad that I wanted to tell and always wanted to tell. And, you know, I was jealous when, when David got that gig because they're one of my favorite uh, comics. And so I was like, oh, I always thought that would make a great movie. Well, I'm excited to see the movie because, you know, somebody else is doing it. But, uh, you know, I felt like that was Shazam, you know, always thought Shazam would make a great property, always was excited about the potential of doing it. And then, um, you know, they made the movie and I thought it was great. So it's just, you know, it's, it's I can't do everything I dream about doing. Right. It's, it's more of a, I mean, 
it's more of a men on a mission, men and women on a mission film than it is a superhero or supervillain team movie. It's, it's, it's more of that. Would you agree? Was that more of your reference points? 30 dozen more than Avengers, clearly. 100%. It's a war caper film with uh, super with Z-grade supervillains, you know? And they're just a bunch of sad sack soldiers at the end of the day who have problems connecting with each other. So I think that, yeah, for sure, that's the genre engine that drives the movie. Uh, much more so than a, a superhero film. There's nothing really about the general superhero film engine that drives this film. Um, I sent you a message after I saw it. I mean, there were a lot of things I loved about it. The thing, one of the things that jumped out to me was Idris, who I feel like is, I mean, I'm always rooting for him. He's, he's delivered some great performances, but I feel like in the mainstream stuff, he's not been well served. And I feel like most folks, for whatever reason, it just hasn't clicked. They haven't found the right kind of big thing for him. And I just loved him in this movie. I loved He's like, to me, he's like Snake Plissken and Han Solo somewhere like fused together. The reluctant, classic kind of reluctant hero. He's, he is a yeah. bastard, like all of them. Can you talk to me about like what you were, I mean, you, you, you get the most out of your actors. Like I could, I could go down the list and say like a half dozen different actors I've never seen better before, but tell me a little bit about Idris and, and, and Bloodstone. Well, Idris is a guy who I've wanted to work with for a long time. I thought he was a star when I saw him in Stringer Bell on The Wire and I've loved yeah. him ever since then. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, my, my ex-wife is Jenna Fisher on The Office, and I thought about writing a role for him in this movie, and I called Jenna up, and I'm like, do you like Idris? Is he a nice guy? And she said he's a great, she said he's beyond great. She's like, she was telling me about how she was with her publicist at an event, and Idris met her and was so nice to her and looked her in the eyes. And anybody who's in Hollywood knows that there are a lot of people that when they're around a famous person, everybody else seems to disappear you know we uh michael i have a friend of mine who's a tv tv actor and we have a guy who we know who we go to a party with this person and we can tell exactly where our career is at that time <laughs> oh, by how no. much time he spends looking at us versus looking around at other people the very famous person That's and it's, it's so obvious <laughs> you always know where you stand in the industry by how much the guy looks at you and that's always something and that's what it just smelled like so she came, he came very highly recommended i wanted somebody who had the, the this gravity about them you know he's like a william money and unforgiven a guy yeah. who had you know came from the heights of supervillainism he shot <laughs> superman down from the sky with a kryptonite bullet and now he's in a prison scraping gum off the floor and has no interest in being recruited into this operation. So I just thought he would be great for that. And I wrote the whole role around him. Were you ever gonna show that reference point to taking down Superman or was it best left in the imagination? Yeah, I never thought about showing it. No, I mean, like, no, never really thought it, you know. You have a great kind of rogues gallery, some of which like are better known than others. Most, frankly, are not known to most even comic fans. I mean, I don't know most of these characters and, yeah. uh, and I still have fallen in love with Polka Dot Man, et cetera. Um, but there were, there were, as you say, there were different, I know Warner Brothers was considering different kinds of Suicide Squad, things Gavin O'Connor was talked about, et cetera. Like I know that like Deathstroke was talked about, Black Adam was talked about. Did you consider either of those seriously? Deathstroke, I, I definitely considered Deathstroke and I love Joe Manganiello uh, as a dude. So, uh, but at the end of the day, I just wasn't sure it, it worked for this movie. Um, but I definitely considered Joe, yeah. And in terms of casting, was it important? Did you feel like, you obviously have Rooker in there, but for the most part, these are not the Guardians cast. Did you consider 
some of your guardians crew, or did you feel that would muddy the water? Well, I mean, that? people know I almost cast Dave in a role, and uh, and he couldn't do it, so uh, he didn't. But other than that, you know, uh, well, there might be a guardian somewhere in the film that no one has seen yet, and I'm what? so surprised by. Yeah, really, the eagle-eyed, including myself, haven't noticed it. Okay, I've been hundred. I've gotten a hundred reviews from this movie, and I just, I just am astounded. Wait, is the person visible, or am I listening? I'm not going to tell you anything else, Josh. What? <laughs> it's it's going to be found out as soon as this comes. I'm sure. I'm sure. I can't believe people haven't, you know. Okay. Wow. Okay. I've seen it twice. Now, clearly, I need to go back a third time. Yeah. Um, I reference, you know, kind of like the the, the, the the trauma roots, the horror roots, like that's in there, especially towards the third, in the third after this film. Yeah. There's some horrific fucking imagery in this film, yeah, yeah. that I yeah. love. Starro is like, you thought the Borg was a scary kind of collective villain. No, this yeah. this kill, kills that. The stuff in the lab, I don't want to ruin too much. But like, did you revel in kind of like, again, going back to some of those things that obviously doesn't fit the aesthetic, the vibe of Guardians, but you- can Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, I love, when I was a little kid, I found Starro so scary. Like, and then he's also so goofy at the same time. And so, <laughs> he, you know, you I just- You your cake get, and eat it too. You can do both, I, yeah. Yeah, I get excited by the, you know, the challenges of a giant pink and cerulean blue starfish <laughs> that walks like a two-year-old that is also terrifying. And how could we make that work? Not to mention he's walking through like one of the most, you know, greatest, you know, uh, looking and most interesting locations in the world. It's like a- big Jeff Koons artwork. <laughs> I feel like in this film, there are a couple, like Peacemaker stands out to me most as like, there's almost like a, 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 a gentle mocking of like the classic superhero um, costumes. Like yes. that. <laughs> I mean, his, his, his costume is bananas. I Ridiculous. think even, 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 you know, blood sport, like running around at times with just the helmet, you're like, oh, this is all just so sick. Like, how, how do these grown men live with themselves? Is there a bit of that where like you get to kind of like have fun with that trope? Well, that I think in particular with Peacemaker, I mean, I, I just wanted every character to look almost like they were from a different genre of film, you know? <laughs> and these were all successful movies that were made with these different characters from different genres of you know, soup comic book films. And then they're coming together in the Suicide Squad, even though of course we've never met any of them, um, except for Harley. But yeah, uh, I think that I was excited about uh, Peacemaker's outfit in general. There's actually, you know, they they make fun of him uh, in, in the TV show where Steve Agee's character says, you know, I'm not sure a bright red shirt and bright white pants are exactly conducive to Luke lurking in the shadows. I mean, it's like the worst possible costume you could ever have, but that's who Peacemaker is. He's like, you know, he's out there, man. He wears short sleeves. That's one of the best things, a superhero costume with short sleeves so that it can show off, you know, how cut he is. Like that's yeah. why, the only reason he would have it like that. It's so great, it's so great. The, um, I also love, I don't know if you've ever explored this or shot a version of this, or this has been in your mind for a while. There's a portion of a very significant fight that is viewed through a superhero helmet. Like you're, you're, you, you linger on a reflection yeah. for a yeah, fight, yeah. which is, which is a pretty ballsy thing to do. Um, has that been something that you've thought of for a while or just came to you in this one? It came to me in that one when I, I, I guess when I started storyboarding it, you know, so, yeah. you know, I write the, I write the scenes, but then I started storyboarding them. And a lot of times the storyboards stay pretty much the same as what is in the script. So like the big Harley fight sequence, that storyboarded very much like what it was written like in the script. Whereas 
the jungle scene where, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Bloodsport and Peacemaker get into their sort of toxic masculinity carnival. Uh, <laughs> um, that that was, you know, that kind of just said, you know, they start killing people almost as if they're competing uh, right. and trying to see who is cooler. And that was all it was in the script. And then I sort of started drawing it and then built it into that side-scrolling video game where things just keep getting exponentially more uh, violent and more ridiculous. So you clearly fell in love with all these characters. We're, we're gonna get uh, a bunch more a Peacemaker in this series that you've completed. Um, is this one story? Is it episodic? What's the, what's the structure of the Peacemaker show? It's, it's one story over eight episodes, you know, and it really is an ensemble. It really is the story of Peacemaker, of Danielle Brooks' character, Leota, of the two techs from the movie, uh, you know, uh, Steve Agee and Jennifer Holland as John Economos and Amelia Harcourt, and uh, then Vigilante, played by Freddie Stroma, uh, and then uh, Chuck Woody plays a guy, character by the name of Mern. So it's about that six. And it is really just the greatest, it's the greatest. I love it. I just totally love it. So Sim similar in tone and violence level, et cetera, to the Suicide Squad, or does it have its own kind of thing? It has its own kind of thing. I mean, it definitely is an offshoot of the Suicide Squad in that it's very gritty and very violent. But also we get a lot more of going into somebody's life and seeing really who they are and where they live and what they do and the drama that he has. So it gets has more drama and more comedy. Um, it just is, it goes into his, his mind completely in the mind of those people around him. And it's about a guy who, you know, is confronting a world that is very, very different than the world he grew up with, which is what a lot of, you know, white dudes are doing right now. Right. I, I got to think like shifting over to the Marvel side of things. I mean, with the way they're turning out these great Disney plus shows, I mean, your ensemble of guardians, like each of them merits their own Disney plus show or movie. Like what's, is there talk of that? Would you spearhead? Would you EP? Would you direct a Guardians Disney Plus show? And is there one that's at the top of the list? There, 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 you know, the one that was always that I, you know, listen, just being honest, and this will be, of course, the thing that everybody gets out of this interview if I say it. <laughs> you know, I always thought the Ravagers would be a great, you know, you know, uh, show. Yeah. So um, whether that was with, you know, Sly Stallone's Ravagers are just even more in depth in terms of the pirates and what they're doing. I think I was always interested in doing that. I told uh, I told Kevin Feige that when he first visited set when we were on the Ravager ship in Guardians 1, I said, you should make a Ravager show. And he said, if this movie's a hit, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> and there's still no Ravager show, so I don't know what happened. Um, but, but the truth is I'm awful busy. So I really don't know what, I, I mean, I want to do a Peacemaker season two. So that's the only thing that I'm sort of uh, committed to if, if it happens at this point. So you're going to get going pretty soon on Guardians 3 and, and the Christmas and the I'm holiday special. For, I'm going hardcore now, man. I just gave my assistant a, you know, crap load of uh, storyboards <laughs> to go put together. So, yeah, amazing. No, I'm way hardcore into it. So so this is an interesting situation in that I know, look, this was obviously ready to go about three years ago. You had the script. It was, it ever, I think, like the cast had read it or Chris had read it. I feel like I talked to him about it. Everybody read it. Yeah, except for Dave. Dave doesn't like reading it until right before he shoots. So, but everybody else has read the script, yeah. So I know, and I know I've heard you in other conversations, like 
it's not, you're not changing it wholesale. It pretty much is what it is. You're obviously like any filmmaker, I'm sure you're going to tweak till the last minute and make it as great as possible. But uh, I'm just curious, like, look, you've, you've also talked openly about Rocket being the character you've always kind of related to most and it being Rocket's story. Um, can, you, can you hint a little bit about sort of like the arc of Rocket from where we saw him in Guardians 1 to what, like, what is this third film? What is the final journey of Rocket going to feel like and tail without you know, obviously getting into specifics. Well, I think we just get to know where Rocket, you know, at the very first movie, you know, we see Rocket take his clothes off. We see those scars on his back. We see that he's come from someplace very difficult. And to me, that's always been the center of the Guardians is, you know, how do you make a, a, a raccoon talk and make him real? And it's sort of ended up being the saddest story of all time. And it is the saddest story of all time. So. Guardians of the Galaxy is the saddest story of all time. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, like, again, we've talked about how the emotion, the emotion in all your films. I mean, you know, Yondu's death in Guardians 2. I mean, the, the Cat Stevens music, everything. I mean, it all hit me. I'm sure it hit yeah. audiences. Like, do you, do you, when you look at your scripts in Guardians 3, do you see those moments that make you well up and you feel like will hopefully connect with an audience? Definitely. I mean, I can't even tell you how sad it is. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for the saddest superhero. It kills me, movie it kills me every time. I can't believe I'm even writing it. I, I look at it sometimes and I go, what in the world is going on? This is so, so incredibly <laughs> tragic. <laughs> I'm not joking. I do it every day where we're designing all these characters and stuff. And I sit down and I'm like, it's, it's so heartbreaking. It's just rocking where he came from and all of that. It's just. It's really heartbreaking, and I love I love him. I love him more than you know almost any character, if not any character ever. He's my boy, you know. And uh, you know, I still every time I watch the last shot of him in Guardians Two, I cry. Every time yeah. I watch Drax pet him in uh, Guardians One, I cry. And now we really get to see where all of that came from. What leads to all of those moments? Where you know who is he and where is he from? But also everybody else too also has their story. What does it mean to have had these guardians do their thing over the past few years? What do they mean to each other? Like it is, it's all of that. And, um, and the, the, you know, the, the kind of the trilogy comes to an end. I mean, this, this will mark a kind of a decade for you of living with these comic book films um, succeeding at the highest level. Um, and you've, you've talked about both your love of them and also like, you know, you had some candid thoughts the other day saying, look, some, a lot of them don't work for me. I, that's fair criticism. A lot of them don't work for me either. But like, where do you see the next decade? Like, do you feel like you're going to be lured back into the comic book movie fold? Or do you feel like you've got to kind of like take a significant break in order? I, I don't feel reason? either of those things, Josh. I really just feel like I need, you know, I just want to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I'm really enthusiastic and excited about yeah. in the same way I was excited about Suicide Squad. If I can do you know, try to be, you know, most as, as nearly excited about anything I take on in the future is that it really doesn't matter to me. You know, if it's a Marvel project or a DC project or Clifford the Big Red Dog or something <laughs> that I make up myself, I don't really care. I don't miss that they made that movie. Literally, Clifford movie is about to come. <laughs> yeah, I want to make the Clifford the Big Red Dog. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna, yeah, the the Godfather. Just keep adding the buzz. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the Back to the Future. 
<laughs> sure, you've seen Back to the Future. Have you seen the Back to the Future? <laughs> um, <laughs> the you just saw any old Back to the Future. This yeah. is the Back to the Future. <laughs> What's okay? So now Marvel has obviously in the last couple of years they've opened it up. They've got like the keys to the Fox properties, X Men, Wolverine, Fantastic Four. What are you as a fan of all of it most excited to see? What could if Kevin rang you up and said, "Hey, here's Wolverine. Here's whatever." Any nothing. of them? No? Zero, zero, nothing. None of Dude, those. Like if, if Warner Brothers came to me and said I could do anything I wanted, like I don't. It's just like it's got to be something that excites me specifically, you know. Yeah. And I just, I just don't know what that is. Right now, there's nothing. I really, I feel like I'm at a place in my career where I can't pretty much do what I want. And I don't, uh, it would have to be something I really, really care about on a creative level. And, you know, and, and, and that's not necessarily what the fans think is the biggest property. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, listen, what do I like doing? I I like taking things that people don't love. I want to, you know, when they offered me Superman, I'm like, well, somebody's going to make a Superman movie. No, it's not like there's never going to be another Superman movie, but who's going to tell Polka Dot Man's story? If I don't tell it, (laughs) nobody. It'll never get told. You know, I want to put a big villain in there. Yes. There's going to be, you know, someday there's going to be, you know, whatever, every single supervillain you can think of, but not necessarily Starro. He's the guy that's going to get left out of having his movie told, his story told in a big way. So I want to tell Starro's story, you know? See, there's the punk rock guy we were worried was dead. He's, he's, he's alive and well. That's how it it comes out. You know, for, you know, when Guardians of the Galaxy was coming out, everybody just endlessly hitting that hammer of, A, this is going to be Marvel's first flop, you know? And then secondly, nobody wants these characters. Why are they making these characters when we don't have fill the blank, you know? Right. And it was just constantly, constantly happening. Then it happened with Suicide Squad, and now it's happening with Peacemaker. It's like, (laughs) you know, wait, wait to see the movie, man. How many times do I have to prove I can make you care about the weirdos? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you won't like it, I don't know, but just... But don't judge it from one line in the Hollywood Reporter. Right. Are, are you? You've kind of become the de facto one of the guys that always comes out to have to defend the comic book movies when some of the luminaries come out that we all love and respect, like the Jodie Fosters and Scorseses of, of of the world say certain things. Does it feel a little exhausted sometimes to be the guy that'd be like, you know, I love you, Marty, but hear me out here? <laughs> Or what? Do you feel? Do you feel a responsibility to kind of defend what you've devoted so much of your life and and love to? Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I just think you know, it's awful. It seems just seems awful cynical that that he, you know, he would keep coming out against Marvel, and then that's the only thing that would get him pressed for his movie. Right. So then he just kept coming out against Marvel so that he could get pressed for his movie. So he's creating his movie in the shadow of the Marvel films. And so he uses that to get attention for something that he wasn't getting as much attention as he wanted for it. And he's one of the greatest filmmakers who's ever existed. Uh, I love his movies. I can watch his movies with no problem. And he said a lot of things I agree with. There is a lot of things that are true about what he said. There are a lot of heartless, soulless, you know, spectacle films out there um, that don't that don't reflect what should be happening. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times I've talked to film directors before they went in and made a big movie and said, "Hey, we're in this together. Let's do something different 
with these big movies. Let's make them something different than everything that's come before them. Yeah. And, uh, and then see them just go and just cater to every single studio whim or what's thought of and just be grossed out, frankly. So, I, you know, he said, well, a lot of what he said was good. And then also like, he hasn't seen my movie. He doesn't know what my movie is. Sure. So, you know, it was, it was irritating. What, what, what do you think I was, you know, my feelings were hurt, you know? And yeah. listen, more hurt by, you know, Coppola comes out and nobody's, you know, <laughs> who comes out and says they're despicable. <laughs> that was way worse than what Martin Scorsese said. They're despicable. I'm like, all right. Wow. <laughs> That's like. Burn James Gunn at the stake for what he's done. How dare he? Um, are you excited? I'm kind of curious about Toxic Avenger. Are you curious as a trauma guy that uh, they're doing a Toxic Avenger movie? Do you know about that? Yeah, sure. I wish Lloyd all the luck. I hope he makes some money. He needs it. <laughs> He's wearing a cardboard belt over here, as he used to always say to me. <laughs> I'm wearing a cardboard belt over here. Yeah. And finally, I'm just curious, um, you know, you've talked about, like, I, I get now your criteria. It doesn't matter what it is, as long as, obviously, you just fall passionately in love with it. But, I, you know, I would love to see you kind of do, like, horror like, a, like, obviously you produce some stuff. Like, is there a script that you've worked on for years that you can imagine potentially coming back to more in the horror genre? No, I don't think I have any horror movie scripts left. I think they're all gone after okay. Belko. Okay. So, uh, yeah, no, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, it's possible, you know, but it, really, honestly, anything's possible. This is what's that idea that I like in the, the moment. Um, well, you're a man of your word. You know, as, as I said, we've talked about doing this for a while and I'm glad, you know, finally, when it was time for you to, to chat again, you uh, honored your promise. And uh, I always love talking to you, man. And I'm very happy for you that uh, out of this dark hour came this amazing, great film, The Suicide Squad, everybody should check out. And uh, best of luck on everything. Hopefully we'll chat again soon. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thanks for everything. I thought we were going for six hours, but I guess not. <laughs> I got places to be. I don't know about you. It's like, you got those movies fast. That we need to take at least a couple hours of peace on those movies before, you, you know, I was like, wow. You have Guardians 3 storyboards to, to draw. I do, dude. Let me tell you, it's killing me so much stuff. <laughs> and so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>